Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420. WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the asylum assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz, the newly quaffed. Silent Assassin. We'll talk about that later, though, for sure. It's uh, the entire paranormal world is a buzz. Get it? See what I did there? Yep. Yep. I see that. We are here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. And we are so excited because it's October now. It's our holiday season. And so we're going to be bringing you lots of great paranormal talk over the next couple of weeks. But uh, tonight, we're going to jump right into our interview with our very special guest tonight, uh, Lauren DiDio. She is the... She has over 13 years' experience in her field showcasing her proficiency in technological advancements, and we could talk to her just about technology with, with her wealth of knowledge in that field, and that's uh, her area of expertise these days. But back in the 1970s, she was an investigative journalist, and she was one of the uh, first people to actually work with the Lutz family in telling their story, and she was able to gain their trust and, and experience you know the Amityville horror through the Lutz's perspective, so... I've wanted to have her on for a while. She was featured in the film My Amityville Horror. And when I saw her in the film, I said, you know, here's somebody who actually understands the what the Lutzes went through. And Laura, we're so glad that you could join us. Thank you so much for doing so in short notice. How are you? I think I put her through there. Hi, Laura. Are you with us? Yes, I am. Anyway, sorry. See, new phones. <laughs> Actually, with your technology background now, we should have you come in and explain them to us. You might know better than we do. I, I think that there are ghosts in the ether. Oh, that always happens to us here. Yes, I think I think that's what it is, so I'm not sure I could shed any light on it. I'm often as confounded as you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with your, uh, with your current role uh, working in the technology field, I mean, I, I think a lot of people, are they surprised in your work now to find out that you are associated with the Amityville story? Um, yes and no. Um, certainly, I still work in the uh, field of parapsychology, and um, I have a book coming out on a psychic medium, Vicki Monroe, called the, the Conduit. And I still continue to be involved in, in that, as you saw with the uh, my Amityville horror documentary. Mm-hmm. But um, and I still do investigative reporting. So I meld, um, I play in a lot of different uh, market segments. But yes, I mean. Uh, it's it's funny when somebody from Microsoft or Apple or IBM will say, hey, uh, I just saw My Amityville Horror on Netflix. I didn't realize you were that, Laura. So some people are surprised. But um, actually, Tim and Matt, the amazing thing is that 35 years on after, you know, all of this happened, um, Amityville has developed. Your such, station I, I, for I, the I, South. Sorry about that. It's not even a cult following. I mean, we're now on to second and third generation um, fans of this. So they're aware. They, they know more about it than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it, the story's been dissected so many times uh, over the years, and we, we have all the different camps. Now, you have to be in a certain camp when it comes to Amityville. You have to either believe the Lutzes or think that it was a hoax. You have to either, you know, side with Ronnie DeFeo or feel like he was, uh, you know— the, 
kind of the fall guy for something else. There's there's so many different uh, avenues uh, to the story now that uh, it, it seems like nobody can just look at it objectively across the board and, and kind of come to any conclusions. You have to have a, a dog in the fight in some way or another. Well, um, actually, as <laughs> when I started out, I was a news assistant at Channel 5, uh, which is now WNYW, but at the time was WNEW. And I was uh, still a student at Fordham when I started interning there and then working there as a news assistant and then news writer. And uh, that was my first job out of college. Uh, but at the time, journalism, of course, was very different from what it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have 250 cable channels. You didn't have the Internet. You didn't have cell phones. So... In that sense, um, the uh, I guess it was more or less limited. Certainly, when you when you start, uh, the starting point for Amityville is of course the DeFeo's murder. And for anybody who's not um, familiar with the story, who might be listening now, in November 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr., um, who was the oldest of six children of Louise and Ronald DeFeo senior, uh, took a shotgun in the middle of the night and murdered his entire family. Uh, He was caught several days later. He was then tried and convicted, and he is still, he's doing life in prison in uh, maximum security prison in upstate New York. His story has changed many times over the years. Uh, There were some very strange things about the DeFeo murders. Which were, which were never explained, namely how somebody could take a shotgun, not have a silencer, and murder all six members of his family, and they were on two different floors, without anyone ever hearing it or attempting to flee the house right. and get out of bed. I mean, and the toxicology reports from the autopsy showed that none of the victims not his parents, not his four si- none of his four siblings had been drugged. So that remains a mystery. Um, it's also, um, I guess, less of a mystery, but still puzzling, that none of the neighbors heard anything. Now, this was November. It is New York. Uh, but there, there are houses nearby. So even with windows closed, you would have thought somebody would have heard something. Especially a rifle. Yeah. Exactly. It was a thirty-five um, caliber, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. And, of course, uh, Ronnie Jr., or uh, Butch, as he was known, um, he has changed his story many, many times over the years. You know, he's hinted that other people, his one of his sisters and her boyfriend were involved. He had accomplices. He's, he's variously said the devil made him do it. Um, et cetera. So, I mean, I think we can say, I mean, it was known that he did have a drug problem. He was a substance abuser. Uh, he clearly was at loggerheads with his dad. Okay. And, uh, you know, then he, he, you know, again, the story changed quite a bit. So, uh, you know, say what you will. And I mean, the story still changes to this day. Mm-hmm. 
and and we've had Jackie Barrett on and and she's discussed that with us about how you know Ronnie hasn't been able to stick to the story and that it seems like each time there's a new avenue for him to go down as the as the explanation or as the excuse for his actions you know he'll follow that until uh, until that runs out and then he'll switch to a different story so it, it's I think that honestly I, I think that he doesn't really know anymore what went on I think that uh, he's either blocked it from his mind or or he just wasn't in his right mind when it happened and so he can't have a full recollection well uh I say this in the nicest possible way. I mean, his mind is not something I would want to delve into. Mm. <laughs> That's you a know, good idea. It's, however, uh, what a lot of people, for, you know, forget when, um, uh, and of course, the DeFeo murders, you know, were a tragedy. So that that sets up the potential here for paranormal occurrences. Well, we are talking with Laura DiDio. And Laura, you when, when you got involved in this story now, you said that you were uh, working for, for the cha- uh, the television channel. Mm-hmm, channel and, 5 News. And you were just, you know, you're still in school. I don't And so you were still, uh, you know, young, fresh-faced reporter, you know, not not full of all the skepticism that the older news stories, uh, uh, the older newsmen and women of the time were probably uh, filled with. So the Lutz family moves into this house following the DeFeo murders and they're there for 28 days and then they're coming out of there saying that the house is haunted and they went through all these experiences. How does the assignment come about for somebody to cover this story in a newsroom? Well, it, it, the assignment didn't come about. Um, I basically had a background in um, parapsychology investigations and uh, I had an interview show at uh, WFUV. That was the Fordham University radio station, which is which is 50,000 watts FM stereo. Um, and I used to interview, I had interviewed Ed and Lorraine Warren. I had interviewed Hans Holzer, Uri oh. Geller, you name it. I mean, we're in, you know, we're in New York, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right <laughs> All there. All these people were right there. <laughs> Absolutely. So when the Lutz, oh, when the DeFeo murder happened, and then a year later somebody moved in, um, the uh, William Weber, who was Ronnie DeFeo's attorney, had been contacted by the Lutzes. Um, well, I guess during the 28 days they were in the house, when things, when uh, they claimed things started to happen, they uh, did some research. And at the time, William Weber, the attorney, was attempting to get an appeal for Ronnie DeFeo on the grounds that, quote unquote, the devil made him do it. Now, for anybody listening, they're saying, okay, this is crazy. But when you look at the time, you know, um, in 1974, the same year as the murders, that was the year that The Exorcist movie came out and made such a huge impression on the general populace. And yet it was also before the Freddy Krueger slasher movies came out. Right. So you had it bracketed there. The other thing that wasn't uh, known at the time... Uh, too much. It wasn't very heavily publicized. Was after the DeFeos were were murdered, um, the DeFeo and Briganti families uh, wanted the house sold, obviously, and the Lutzes bought it for eighty thousand dollars. But they also sold much of the DeFeos furniture to the Lutzes, including the beds that the kids slept in. Oh, that's uh, that's a little creepy. Well, it's very creepy. Not the mattresses. The other thing is, and again, this hasn't been well publicized, but, uh, you know, for, for a long time after the murders, I mean, that house was a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So when the Lutzes moved in, 
again, this part of the story wasn't publicized too much. They were actually scraping, you know, the blood, <laughs> the oh, blood wow. off the walls. Well, that's why I come so cheap. <laughs> they, yes, well, exa- they, well they didn't exactly. Well, exactly. And not only that, that, you're putting these, you know, you're putting your children, the three, um, Kathy's three children by her first marriage, um, sleeping in in the same rooms and this, you know, in the same beds that the murdered DeFeo kids had slept in. And this was only a year after the death. I mean, you talk to anybody in the field of parapsychology about, you know, what it's like to, to go to a, um, a battlefield like Gettysburg mm-hmm. and think of it as haunted. And especially here, you know, where, uh, where over a century passed, about 150 years passed from the Civil War, but we can still feel that that feeling in the air when we go there now. So you can only imagine what that house was like. Well, Uh, not only that, but you had, uh, you know, uh, four of those children. I mean, well, children. The oldest girl was 18, you know, and then then you had 13, 12, and 9 or 10. So if you have a child that's murdered, a lot of times they're not aware of, wow, what just happened to me? Mm -hmm. How did I get to the other side? You know, um, but at Channel 5, we were very invested, you know, and I was very invested at the age of 19, 19 and a half of saying, I better get this right. Because I would have a very, you know, short, aborted career as a news person. Right, especially delving into a story like this. Exactly. So clearly, when the Lutzes moved in and they contacted William Weber when they began to um, have problems. William Weber held a press conference that was attended by the local New York newspapers, mainly Newsday, and the Lutz's pictures were there. So that started to garner attention. But what nobody knew at the time was that the Lutz's, uh, where they were living. Now, again, this being the mid-'70s, you know, where not everybody had a cell phone, you know, you didn't have, well, you didn't have any cell phones. You didn't have any internet. Mm-hmm. It was it was harder to track them down. I basically tracked down um, Lee, uh, George Lee Lutz, at um, his family surveying business. Left a message for him. I, I basically told um, his uh, workers that, hey, I, I had experience in paranormal investigations, would like to talk to him, would like to be able to help the family if I could. Because Weber's uh, intent at the time, after he had met with the Lutzes, was that they wanted to have um, a news crew from another TV station go in with uh, a group of white witches and a vampirologist Hmm. to cleanse the house. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, but I guess at some point the Lutzes and William Weber parted company. They had, you know, disagreements, and uh, at that point the Lutzes were on their own. So when I left the message, George Lutz got back to me and asked me if I could come out and meet with he and Kathy, his wife, on a Saturday afternoon to talk with them. So I didn't tell anybody at the TV station uh, that I was doing this. Certainly, they wanted me to get the story, but the Lutzes were underground, you know. So I wasn't, and I, I figured it would be better to not say anything and then deliver rather than to 
tell them what I was doing. It's not even a case of overpromise, but you know, they wanted that story at all costs. So I did meet with them for four or five hours on a Saturday, spoke to them, told them what I knew. I said, you need to, you know, I think be most concerned about your family and you need to uh, deal with, you know, very legitimate, experienced uh, paranormal investigators. So that's how, that's how it came about. And originally I called Hans Holzer. He was the first one I called, but Hans was busy on another case. And so then I called Ed and Lorraine Warren, whom I also knew, and they were great. Uh, they listened to what I had to say. And again, believe it or not, even in the mid-'70s, they weren't aware of the case because only a couple of news stories had appeared in the local news newspapers. Well, why don't we take a quick break here. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more with our guest, Laura DiDio, about what she found out from the Lutz family. Uh, we are talking about the true story behind the Amityville Horror and uh, her involvement with it. And also, if you'd like to call in with any questions, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. We'll be back in just a minute here on Spooky South Coast on WBSM. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Your station for the South Coast, AM 1420, WBSM. It blew books off shelves from 20 feet away and scared the socks off some poor librarian. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. This looks extraordinarily bad. <laughs> Welcome back. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. We are talking with our special guest tonight, Lauren DiDio. She is the investigative reporter who got the exclusive from the Lutzes. She got to actually meet with them and spend time with them. And we were talking, Laura, before the break about your initial meeting with them and, and sitting down and talking to them. What kind of stories were they telling you? Uh, we all know the legend of Amityville now. We know what's come out in the Jay Anson book and the films, but uh, what was the actual story that they were sharing with you? Well, it's, it's important to, um, to bring out that at the time, you know, they appeared to be, I was going to have to make the decision on my own about whether or not I thought they were credible enough to then go to back to my bosses at the TV station again because I didn't want it to be all on you know all on me. It was going to be all on me mm -hmm. <laughs> if they were <laughs> if they were nutcases. Um, I felt that they were credible because they appeared to be genuinely terrified. Kathy, of course, has des described what was in the Jay Anson book. Um, what subsequently would be in the Jay Anson book, that she had looked in the mirror one day and her face was that of an, you know, of an old uh, hag or a woman. Um, they both said that they had had mood swings and changes, that they were very combative, uh, very argumentative, not so much Kathy, but George. Um, there was the famous incident that they described where the... Uh, bedroom window slammed down on um, Danny's hands. Uh, he, he was the oldest boy who was nine at the time, and they couldn't get the window up. Um, they also uh, uh, talked about, uh, George talked about he could uh, never seem to uh, get warm. He always had a fire going. You know, and again, this is December in New York, but it wasn't, you know, we're not talking the Arctic. Um he they said that other that children 
their children's uh, uh, playmates did not want to come to the house, that animals felt very uneasy. Uh, Kathy described how her um, brother Jimmy, who was getting married, had $1,800, you know, to pay for, um, I guess, some of the food for his wedding reception, and that disappeared. Uh, all sorts of things like that. They would wake up in the middle of the night at the same time as they later found out that the um, Lutzes had been murdered about 3.15 in the morning. But when you listen to the story, it seemed that almost every type of psychic plague that had ever been depicted, with the exception of the mummy and the Frankenstein monster, had been visited upon, you know, this family. Mm-hmm. So it did, it did certainly, um, uh, you know, challenge, challenge your beliefs. But they seemed, uh, they seemed genuinely terrified and wanted help. They were also adamant that they would not go back into the house under any circumstances. You know, they did not talk about what had happened that last night when they fled in terror. Um, So at that point, when I left them, they said they would give me the exclusive story. I promised, you know, put them in touch with, um, again, reputable paranormal investigators. That was Ed and Lorraine Warren. And I went back to the station, and everybody was really uh, very, very excited about it. Uh, As Marvin Scott who ended up being the reporter who was there for the um, the seance that we had on March 6th, has said um, <laughs> most recently, he says, you know, everybody loves a good ghost story. So this was, this was huge in terms of media. But you did mention earlier the difference between the news media now and the news media of then. Yes. Uh, we're, we're, see, back then, you're concerned with whether or not the, these people seem like they are legitimate and they're telling a true story. Nowadays, they would care more about do they think that they're telling the truth. That's all that matters is how they would appear on camera more than uh, – and how people would perceive them more than whether or not it was true. Because uh, it, I guess even back then, though, it's – whenever these stories did come about – you know, the reporters would always kind of take that tone with the story. Uh, the anchors would have that woo-woo-woo mentality when they're introducing the story. How did you uh, make sure that this was going to be treated with respect? Because you saw firsthand what this family is going through, so you don't want to see what's happening to them being made light of. Uh, well, exactly. Well, I think here's the thing. All of the reporters uh, you know, involved, like Steve Bauman was the first one who actually went out there with, with us uh, and Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, you know, we were going to treat this objectively. And uh, I remember George Lutz met us on outside the house to give us the keys. And Steve tried to convince him to come in while we did the, the initial walkthrough with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And he would have none of it. So I think if, what, if you're a reporter, you want to see good TV, so you're hoping that something would happen on camera a la poltergeist. Right. You know, the truth, I mean, the truth is, and I've said this before, if, if you don't believe in the supernatural or an afterlife or ghost or demonic uh, spirits or presence, you have no problem. For the nonbelievers, it's a, it's, it's a simple case of best-case scenario, uh, the Lutzes were delusional, and, um, <laughs> you know, that's that. In a worst-case scenario, 
They were charlatans who were trying to take advantage of the DeFeo tragedy and make a quick, fast buck by saying that they were haunted or possessed, Mm -hmm. whatever. If you do believe it, even if you are inclined to believe them, you still have to um, go through it and apply, you know, logic and look at this with a um, questioning eye. In other words, you know, to to be objective. Uh, When we went in there that first time with Ed and Lorraine, uh, it profoundly affected Lorraine Warren. Uh, she was sitting there. She felt, you know, physically drained, physically um, ill, or, you know, physically oppressed. She felt, you know, a heaviness. But when you're doing that on camera, you're just watching somebody say, hmm, you know, uh, I don't feel so great, or I feel this, this heavy, this heaviness, this heavy force. And you've got to take it um, you are either going to believe it or you're not going to believe it. And what happened was after that first story appeared that night, our, the phones just, you know, lit up in the newsroom. People were fascinated, um, you know, with this story from the get-go. Even though they didn't see anything, it wasn't like poltergeist. You didn't see anything flying through the air. You, did, you know, <laughs> no crackling TVs, nothing like that. So... It was after that that we went and Steve did another um, interview with some other folks from the Catholic Church and the Council of Miracles and things like that. And then finally uh, we did the the third installment, which was the um, seance, and Marvin Scott did that. And again, there was nothing um, on camera ostensibly that, you know, where there was any paranormal manifestations. But which one of these uh, visits now is the one in which the ghost boy photograph was captured? That was the March sixth. That was the that was the uh, the seance. Okay. So so the and, third the third visit. Yes, the third visit, uh, and we were all in the house for about eight hours, and you had um, a team from um, the uh, Duke University School of Parapsychology, the Warrens, several other psychics. Um, uh, Alberta Riley, you had Dr. Alex Tanaus from the um, New York uh, Parapsychology Institute was there. So the house, and then you had our crew as well. Many of the psychics, okay, uh, who were there, you know, fell ill or, you know, really just felt a very oppressive uh, presence. That's what they told us. And again, You've got to take this on, you either are going to believe it or you're not going to believe it. I mean, if you tell me you have a headache, how do I know that you really have a headache or a backache? Right. I mean, some things you you take on faith. What I did see happen that night, um, which was well documented, was that our cameraman, who was uh, not one of the regulars, he was a regular stringer for us. Um, he got up and started up the stairs. And it's a big center hallway. This is a three-story house. And cameramen, you know, tend to be very fit. 
And again, going back to the 70s, I mean, a lot of the equipment was bigger and heavier than uh, it is today. I was going to say, you know different cameramen than the ones I know today. <laughs> no offense to my colleagues, but... <laughs> so he, Steve, uh, Steve um, started to go up the stairs. He was about 40 years old, slim, very fit. And he got halfway up the, the first flight of stairs, and he, didn't have, he wasn't carrying any equipment. He was just calmly walking up the stairs. And he turned to me and he said, there's a room on the second floor. It's the one, second one on the right. And he says, a bedroom, and one wall is filled with mirrors. And he said, I don't know how I knew that. Hmm. And he lived in Jersey, so, uh, and he had never been in the house before. So he didn't know anything about it other than, you know, he was going out to film a, a quote-unquote seance from a ghost story was probably what he knew. He got to, then he continued walking to the top of the stairs, and all of a sudden he doubled over with severe chest pains. And this guy had no history of um, heart problems or anything, and we got him down to the bottom of the stairs, and after a few minutes he was... He was okay. So little things like that happened. And, yes, the ghost boy photograph came out of that, although we didn't know about that until later. Sure, yeah, it wasn't like today when you have the digital cameras and everybody's looking in the viewfinder. <laughs> as they whoa, uh, what, is, yeah. what is that? Yeah. But now that photo has uh, brought up a lot of controversy over the years because the picture, if you've never seen the Amityville ghost boy photo, then I highly suggest that you Google it and, and look at some of these side-by-side comparisons because it looks to me... Uh, absolutely, like it could be uh, the youngest DeFeo victim, John Matthew. But it also does look like one of the investigators that was there that night, Paul Bartz, at least when you look at the the hairstyle and the shirt that he may have been wearing. So uh, to me, it's a little bit of, it's too much like either side for me to really come down one way or another, but it's just, it's a very creepy photo either way. And, you know, it is a creepy photo. Uh, We were all surprised to see it. And if, uh, you know, I've been asked about it over the years, and I have said the same thing. I cannot uh, testify to its authenticity, and I cannot tell you that it's faked because I was not there when it was developed. Mm-hmm. I would hope that, you know, you have all of the, the psychics and paranormal investigators who were there were all uh, reputable, legitimate people who had, a rep, you know, a reputation for integrity, one would hope that, you know, nobody there decided to fake it, even as a joke. Well, but I again, mean, yeah, uh, it just it looks like it's an accidental capture that somebody just thought was anomalous later on. Uh, one thing I will tell you, though, is that that spot uh, right up at, right at that top, you know, that uh, first floor landing, that general area was where uh, people started, you know, feeling ill uh so yeah that spot is notorious from from both uh the investigators who have been there and from uh from the Lutz's story i mean just right there near that lion picture is where so many incidents happened in that house well the lion picture that was on the, that was that was the first floor in the the family room you know this was on the the ghost boy picture was on the first floor uh was on the stair landing on the second floor oh in the, uh, you know, outside one of the bedrooms. Because in the photo I'm looking at, there's a picture of a lion on the wall. I mean, maybe there was more than one. Uh, somebody liked lions a lot, I guess. Well, it, that was, that was the, the lions were um, the DeFeos. Right. That they was, had belonged to the DeFeos. 
and that, that was kind of uh, Big Ronnie's thing, right? The photos of the lions. Yes. So now, uh, I guess uh, some people have emailed Paul Bartz over the years, and uh, and he won't really say yes or no whether or not it was him that was poking around that corner. I mean, we've all been on investigations here in the studio, and and a lot of our listeners have. You don't you don't recall every single minute of the entire investigation, so he he might not remember if he poked his head around like that. But just the the resemblance that it bears to John Matthew DeFeo to me is stronger than it it does to to Paul Bartz. Yes, and at the time again. Um, I suppose if Paul Bartz uh, wanted to do a forgery, um, he would have looked to one of the the DeFeo children. There weren't. I mean, certainly you could have. He could have obtained pictures of them from the, you know, newspaper archives of the day. Yeah. So it's it's possible. Again. You know, one would hope that rep- people who have a reputation for integrity, you know, wouldn't want to risk that by doing a forgery. And again, you know, the other thing that you have to remember is that nobody ever had an inkling at the time that this was going to be this huge story. Right, yeah. This One is before thing the book, that nobody the could predict, and I've always said this, this is the random element in all of this, because there are a lot of ghost stories over the years, and a lot of, you know, famous hauntings and unexplained things. You never know, even if the Lutzes had it in their head that they were going to just fake this, to try and make, again, a quick, fast buck, they would not have been able to you know predict that this would have ta- that the public would have you know had the reception about you know received this the way they did and that it would have gone on and on and one of the uh one of the other issues too is that like we always say, you know, unless you're there when the investigation happens, you can't be sure of of what went on. And uh, by the way, this if you go to uh, ghoststudy.com, you can see the website with the photos uh, comparing Paul Bartz and, and uh, John Matthew DeFeo to the photo. But you say that, you know, people aren't there, so they really don't know what goes on and, and they can't uh, verify for every single moment of what happens. But those who are there, they're kind of the, the only – uh, sources that we have for that information and if the investigators are coming back saying that they don't recall a moment where that picture could have been captured that way i have to tend to believe them especially like you said when you're dealing with a team that has a reputation uh, like ed and lorraine warren and the people that were there with them well the main thing about the um the paul bartz photo and the, the ghost boy photo is that of course you can look at you can look at these things and say oh you know paul bartz that night was wearing a plaid shirt and it appears that the little ghost boy image was also wearing a plaid shirt. Or flannel pajamas. <laughs> Flan- or flannel pajamas, yeah. I mean, it is it is creepy, though, because, of course, the eyes are sort of whited out. <laughs> and, and it's not like these days when you had Photoshop and it was easy to do those kind of manipulative tricks. No, but, you know, look, if you go back and you watch the original Hal Roach Little Rascals um, short films from the 1930s, they had a few segments there on table tapping and psychic fraud. And then you can go back to what was it, the late 1800s, when you had those two little girls who claimed to have seen the fairies. 
Right, yeah. And those things were Photoshopped. They showed little fairies sitting on, you know, a toadstool. It was obviously Photoshopped. And even in the late 1800s, people could say, well, this looked kind of funny. We had the, uh, the the Mumler ghost photographs and all those things. Uh, it was easy to it was easy to manipulate photos if you knew how to do it. But th- I mean, this to me, it just looks like, especially when you look at this picture, like on GhostStudy.com, where they have the picture of John Matthew DeFeo next to the Ghost Boy, and they seem to have a similar uh, eyebrow over mm-hmm. the uh, left eye, and that just seems a little bit too detailed to me for a hoax. I'd be going through a lot of trouble. Uh, if you were trying to hoax that, especially considering you had 1970s photographic equipment and it wasn't as detailed as the photos we have now. What I can tell you with certainty and very objectively is that there were no children in the house that night. Okay. Um, it was um, about uh, the, the the ghost boy photo. Actually, it wasn't really shown publicly for a couple of two or three years after the Amityville. And um, actually, Gene Campbell was the photographer who set up the automatic camera that shot the film. Was it, was it on infrared film or was it on standard film? Um, no, I believe he, um, it was um, standard. It was, it was infrared film, black and black and white. Okay. So... The people that were in there that night had the most advanced equipment for the time, you know, Um, and he shot a lot of film. I mean, much has been made of the fact that with uh, there was only one picture of the little boy. Not a series of photos, which if it was just that one picture. I mean, you would think, too, if it's paranormal, that would be the case, uh, a, a fleeting image as opposed to if it was a real person, there would be, you know, multiple frames of something. Yeah. yeah so somebody moving. And one thing I do want to ask you about, too, before we run out of time here, because I know we just have you for the first hour, and we'd love to have you come no, we back. No, can, we can keep talking for a little bit. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> We'd love to do that. Uh, and But we definitely do want to have uh, some more discussion about this down the line, too, because there's so many different angles uh, to the story. But one thing I want to ask you about is the, the claims of there being uh, a Native American burial ground on the property. That's something that Dr. Holzer had, had put forth as the theory. And we get into the whole uh, John Ketchum side of the story and whether or not the, any of this stuff actually took place on the property. In your research, what did you find out about the history of 112 Ocean Avenue? Okay, well, it's funny you should mention that because I actually worked with Hans after that, and I was the one who did the research for his book. Yeah. Did he give you credit? Because I don't Oh, remember. yeah. Okay. It's, it's, it's in the book. In right. fact, I have the book right here with me now. Um, okay, so yes. Um, but let's be very, very objective and very clear um, about what, what Long Island was like. Long Island and all of New York and, you know, most of the East, East Coast and most of America was filled at one time with uh, Native Americans, Indians. Now, you had the Shinnecock tribe, you had the Mananacock tribe. I'm from Queens, New York myself, and I grew up in a town called College Point, which was also a waterfront community. And back in 1932, when they were, you know, digging, you know, uh, foundations for houses, they came across what was probably an Indian burial ground with, uh, they found pottery, they found bones and skulls. So it was not unusual. The Indians 
we're nomadic. And if you are a more primitive society, you are going to stay near a water source because they didn't have plumbing. So clearly they were going to have villages and burial grounds near the waterfront. Okay, so yes. Um, when we went in there with Hans Holz, when I, I was also in the Amityville house in January of 1977 with Hans Holzer and um, the psychic trance medium Ethel Johnson Myers. And she went into a trance at that time, and uh, sh- the spirit of a, de- you know, a deceased Indian boy came through mm. and was complaining about um, a skull uh, his, he had been buried there, and his skull had been found by some kids, and the kids were playing, uh, were kicking the skull around. So Hans was of the opinion at the time that it was a simple haunting. The Warrens believed it was something um, darker, that it was a, it was a demonic-type presence. So among the parapsychologists and, and psychic investigators, there was not any one consensus about what was there. Hmm. But yes, certainly, um, you know, I wasn't around in the 16, 1700s or 1800s when there were still a lot of Native Americans there. But um, it is, there is no reason to, I don't know if there was a big formal burial ground the way we would think of a modern-day cemetery. Right. But yes, certainly there is enough evidence um, anthropological evidence to show that Indians, you know, did have burial grounds there. And so it's, it's highly probable, you know, based on the research that, that I did, that, uh, you know, there was, um, <laughs> there were um, Indians there on or near the, that exact property. Well, we are talking with Laura DiDio. She is the investigative journalist who was involved in the Amityville story back when it first broke and, and before, it became, before it was the Amityville horror and it was just the experiences of the Lutz family. We do have to take a break coming up here uh, for the news, uh, but when we come back on the other side, we will have more discussion about Amityville and we'll also share with you later on in the show some of the incidents that happened on our Legend Trips event last Saturday at Slater Mill, and I don't know about you guys, I haven't really had a chance to talk with you about what went on, but I don't know about you guys, I had some pretty cool experiences happening in the Sylvanus Brown house, so uh, we can talk about that and whatever else was going on coming up later on in the show. There's also some EVP clips that some of the groups got out there that are uh, up on the internet now, so we'll play some of those later on in the show as well after we speak a little bit more about Amityville with Laura, but if you'd like to go to our next Legend Trips event, it is next Saturday. It will be at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham, Massachusetts, a tavern built in 1690. You know, talking about the days of Native American burial grounds, we're going all the way back to uh, the pre-colonial, you know, the colonial era, the pre-revolutionary era uh, with this investigation. And there'll also be three other buildings that will be part of that investigation as well. Tickets are $99, and a portion of all the proceeds go to help the Wareham Historical Society in their restoration efforts for the tavern and those other buildings. And so far, over the years, we've been able to raise almost $16,000 for 
the different locations where we hold our events with our Legend Trips events. And I know that some of the money that we've raised for the Wareham Historical Society in the past has gone to helping replace some of those floorboards uh, that have been in there for 300 years. So <laughs> they need to get replaced every once in a while. So uh, we'll be having that event next Saturday night. You'll get pizza. You'll get lectures from our, from the Spooky Crew here, from Jeff Belanger of 30 Odd Minutes and Ghost Adventures. And uh, we'll have a great night of investigating. And this is something that we've uh, tried out at Slater Mill, but the Xbox Connect system will be in use at this event as well. So we're going to have that at all of our Legend Trips events in the future. You'll be able to check that out. We'll talk about that more later on in the show because I know, Moniz, you, you messed around with it a little bit, and I messed around with it a little bit. Yeah, Jeff and I had fun. So uh, we'll talk about that system and uh, how that works with paranormal investigation. It'd be something that'd be great to get into the Amityville house, but I don't think anybody's ever getting in there to investigate again, Laura. Uh, I think it's it's highly doubtful. I mean, I have spoken to the um, you know the current owners, and they are lifelong Amityville residents, and they just believe that it's a tired old ghost story, and they are more haunted by the living and are sick to death of people calling them up about it and wanting to know about it. They've been living there since um, the fall of 2010. So we missed our chance. We could have bought it and and turned it into our own regular investigative location. But no, we didn't have $2 million to do it. I tried. I found out it wasn't zoned for a bed and breakfast, so that threw out my whole idea. Oh, too bad. <laughs> the residents <laughs> never would have gone for that, I don't think. All right, so uh, we will be back following the news in just a bit. Stay tuned for more Spooky South Coast, uh, both here on WBSM and on WBSM.com. Tim Weisberg and Matt Foster. Welcome back, hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are talking about Amityville tonight with our guest Laura DiDio, and she was involved with the Lutz family pretty much from the beginning, and she was there for those investigations that we hear about, that we've read about, with uh, Hans Holzer and with Ed and Lorraine Warren when the Ghost Boy photograph was captured, and she's done a lot of the early research into this case that has now become part of the Amityville legend. And that must be strange for you, Laura, to, uh, to have your work not only become part of the Amityville story, but to have it picked apart and criticized from all these message boards and websites over the years. Um, well... I think what's amazing to me is that the story has um, continued to attract um, as much, if not more, attention as the years have gone on. Uh, my research in particular um, has not been, I don't think it's been picked apart or debunked. But, but the story my, as my, a whole, my story, sure. You know, it's, it's a lot of other people's. My story has, has never, you know, changed or deviated. I have always... Um, been very, very um, upfront and frank about what I saw and what I didn't see. And I have objectively stated what the Lutzes, you know, uh, have have told me over the years. So there's what there's, you know, Laura DiDio, the reporter, you know, and I just, you know, just the facts, just the facts. And then there's Laura DiDio, you know, in my personal life and what my opinion is about Amityville. Mm -hmm. And my opinion on that hasn't changed. I think that something did happen to the Lutzes in there. And 
there's a lot of pressure, too, I'm sure, as being somebody who is close to them. Uh, a lot of people probably look f- to put holes in your argument because they want to put holes in what the Lutz has said. And, and George, you know, to, to his detriment in some cases, you know, he talked a lot about the case in his later years, and, and that's what's caused a lot of the speculation about what was made up. But it doesn't help either that you have uh, both Danny and Chris have come out, and they've had stories that are both differing and similar to some degree. And you were involved in the filming of My Amityville Horror, which was Danny's story. Mm-hmm. And that's been something that I know that has been uh, just... It's it's really humanized the story for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, and a lot of people forget. I mean, it's been it's been reported over the years. You know, Danny was that Danny was ten when they lived there, but no, he wasn't. He was nine. Now you might think I'm splitting hairs to say, oh, you know, what's the difference between a nine and a ten year old? Well, if you're talking about somebody who's thirty four to thirty five, there's not much of a difference. But developmentally, there's a big difference between a nine year old and a ten year old. Mm-hmm. You know, Christopher was seven, and Melissa was five. So these were these were young, impressionable children. Okay, I, I uh, having said that, you know, um, as I said, I do believe that something happened to the Lutzes. Do I do I believe or do I have any proof that they were visited, uh, you know, and that every psychic plague known to man was rained down upon them? No, I mean a lot of that. I mean, and the Lutzes said. When, you know, Kathy was still alive, she uh, died, unfortunately, in 2004 from cancer, and George died in 2006 from a heart attack. Um, but Kathy went to her grave saying that, those things, that it was not a hoax. That said, the Lutzes did acknowledge in televised interviews on different um, TV talk shows that a lot of, you know, uh, you know, a good portion of what was in the book, uh, you know, had, you know, there was literary license, sure, you know, taken. You know, so when you start talking about things like poltergeist puke and green slime, we didn't see any evidence of that. No, no marching band tearing through the air. No, uh, no marching floor. band and, you know, real, you know, just regular tap water came out of the faucets. Well, I, I can tell you that when I read the book uh, in my teenage years, I was terrified by the story. And when I read it, I recently reread it because I, I tried to stay away from it as much as I could. Uh, and I tried to immerse myself in other Amityville media. See, this is the story that's been, that, that I've been fascinated with my entire life, as I'm sure you can relate to. And uh, the, what bothered me about the book when I reread it is just how terribly written of a book it is. Like Anson was not even a good writer. No, and I don't know if you're aware of how that, that whole thing came about. But, um, you know, the Lutzes, here's, here's one of the things that has always struck me as very interesting. If the Lutzes were in this to perpetrate a hoax, you perpetrate a hoax for one of uh, a few reasons. Uh, but the two main reasons would be, A, you want to make, again, money, or you, you're looking for attention. Mm-hmm. They were not looking for attention at the time. Okay, they were not courting the the press at all at the time this happened. I'm not talking about later on when they did interviews, and even then it wasn't, you know, like they were on a world tour. But, um, except when they were publicizing Anson's book. Um, If you were in this to make money, 
then they should have had deals lined up left and right. Right. Now, of course, they were um, at early on. They were working with uh, Weber, and there was talk about you know putting the house in a trust and all sorts of things um, to to make money. But that that fell apart pretty quickly. Yeah, it, it seems to me like if you wanted to have a hoax, you would find a, a better writer. Yeah, well, you would find well the way they even the way they came to find Jay Anson, he had been um, working with Prentice Hall, which published the Amityville Horror book, the original book, and they only heard about him. Uh, Kathy's hairdresser had a you know had, knew somebody who worked at Prentice Hall. So that's how they came to get Jay Anson. But they didn't have, they, you know, for people who were intelligent, if their intent was to perpetrate a hoax, to make money, they should have had a better plan. Right. And especially when Anson goes on and writes uh, another book, and, and there was other sequels too. Uh, I forget the name of the gentleman, John something, uh, who wrote the sequel the other book, but uh, yeah, John Jones, yeah, John Jones. That's it, which is obviously you know a pen name, <laughs> if I ever heard one. Yeah, but uh, so we we have these books that come out later that are supposed to be the continuing adventures of the Lutzes, but you know have been since revealed in later years to be pretty much completely fictionalized. Well, there is so much about this, uh, you know, and yes, people pick apart every every little hair and you know split hair is about all of it but you were at the stationed, time but i can I said- tell you nobody had nobody had any idea i'm i'm as surprised as anybody that this turned into um the phenomenon that it has well and that's but that's part of it is that you know, you know if this happened now then it probably wouldn't be as lasting of a legacy of this story because again we live in a more informative age when people can have better access to all the information excuse me here <clears throat> don't like to cough on the other when people have uh, all this access to information as to opposed to back in the 70s when the story could come out and no matter what happened with the story at face value with with the news reporting that that you did uh it, it's only going to increase in the legend that it that it has it's only going to grow over the years stories are going to become associated with it exactly i think that the timing was right though and it didn't hurt that this happened you know 60 miles from new york city right which was and remains the number one you know media cap you know center of the world so that that helps too and everybody wanted that story and, and the other thing that I think is something that a lot of people don't focus on, and we've talked about the Lutz family here in the past. We had Chris on, and he shared with us, you know, the real insight of what went on in the house and how it wasn't, you know, th- how George wasn't necessarily the best stepfather in the world and how there were all kinds of things going on behind the scenes that people don't know about. And I'm sure some of that could have to do with just family drama and family arguments yeah, I mean, still playing okay, out. I, yeah, I think it's a given that this was not the Brady Bunch. Well, but that's the thing is I think that's why a lot of people jumped on this story in the 70s is because the Lutzes were a new type of American family that was starting to permeate through pop culture at the time. Whereas before, you know, there wasn't a lot of focus on the step family type of situation. Whereas in this case you know we were in the brady bunch era when people were more accepting of that so i think that's something that fascinated people and there might have been a little bit of an undercurrent about that people wanted to see how this family that wasn't you know it wasn't his kids uh, how how do they respond to this and how do they uh, respond from adversity like this that's that's a very very good question and i you know if you've talked to chris i'm sure you know he's he's given his 
um, opinions. The only ones who know are the three kids themselves, and I right. wouldn't um, think of, you know, speaking for them. Well, we and we heard from Danny in the film about, uh, you know, he certainly described a an adversarial relationship to a degree with George, uh, and uh, and Melissa hasn't spoken publicly, and uh, I don't think that she's going to. No. No, she hasn't. So uh, it just seems like from the two boys alone, we can we can take into account that, you know, that might have been something that played into what went on. Uh, you know, they were if if you want to call them dysfunctional, they were dysfunctional before they moved into that house. Um, I don't even I wouldn't even say dysfunctional the way I look at anything to do with the paranormal um, realm is that certain people have a sensitivity to it or a talent in the same manner that certain people have allergies or physical sensitivities. Mm -hmm. For example, um, there's, it's only a small percent of the population that has a peanut allergy so severe, you know, that or uh, is so allergic to a bee sting that you could go into anaphylactic shock. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Again, when I was at CNN, I put together a series um, on psychic uh, phenomenon, and um, one of the things, one of the parts to the series was um, we brought on uh, a gentleman who did hypnosis, past life regressions, and I recall running around the newsroom and just grabbing some of my colleagues, okay, randomly, producers, you know, interns, um, et cetera, and getting them into a room for this group grope. And one of the fellows, he was an associate producer, his name was Steve, and he worked on uh, Lou Dobbs' Money Line, which was a popular show. Mm -hmm. He was about 25 or 26, and when we did this hypnosis thing, he went out. I mean, he was out like a light. The hypnotist had to wake him up. Wow. That's... And he had never been involved in any of this stuff before. And he had no hint of what it was going to be like and there were 12 of us in a room. So you just you just didn't know um who was, you know, who was going to be sensitive to it. Well, in... I mean, certainly I think uh, I've always said this. Whatever happened there, I think whatever residual bad energy or negative energy that was left over in the wake of the DeFeo murders, uh, when I think that George triggered whatever happened. Because I was, I was going to say, you know, Chris has hinted, well, Chris said it outright uh, here on our program, and I think Danny kind of hinted at it in the film, that, you know, George was involved in the occult to some degree. We've heard about the transcendental meditation, and the, one of the theories is, is that that is uh, almost a cover for the fact that, that George may have been involved in something a little bit darker uh, prior to moving into the house. Did you get any kind of sense of that, or did you get any kind of information about that from anybody in the family? Um, yeah, I mean, at the time, what happened was uh, what George and Kathy told us was that when the, the they... They basically said that, uh, well, Kathy was religious. She came from a Roman Catholic family, Irish Catholic. Um, George was um, a sort of lapsed Methodist, so he was not religious. According to what he told me directly, 
and I don't have any proof otherwise because, you know, <laughs> I didn't know him before this. He said he had never been involved in any of that, but that when he got into the house and all these things started to happen, it was then that he started taking a crash course in the occult and reading everything that he could on it. Okay. So, so I, mean, I don't know if he had any prior uh, prior things. Certainly, uh, uh, this didn't. This was not. Nobody came forward at the time. He seemed both he and Kathy seemed to be living a very normal middle class existence. I, I mean, mean, he was an ex. He was a marine. He was honorably discharged, and he worked at the family surveying firm. And they were trying to get their life together off the ground. Yes. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I just I look back at it and I say, you know, if if there were instances of where there was uh, an instance, I'm sorry, an interest in this, I could see as where as young children, you know, Danny and Chris might misperceive that as being heavily involved in it. You know, there's a difference between being, say, for example, a practicing Satanist and somebody who just reads a book about ghosts. You know, that's we we all go through that stigma here uh, with hosting the show. Is people think that we are you know into the dark arts here because we talk about the paranormal, and there's there's definitely a difference between wanting to learn about it, and especially where you're talking about George learning about it kind of after they went through this to kind of understand and accept what happened to them, and that would explain why he became so close in years later to uh, a number of paranormal investigators. Yeah, and I mean, I I cannot prove or disprove whether or not he did that because. My um, interaction with him, you know, really began in, you know, February of, you know, that year. And I spoke to the Lutzes, you know, on and off over the years until until their deaths. But again, it was, you know, it was an attenuated relationship after that, although it was always very friendly. So I think that uh, at least in in this day and age, the the story that we're going to get is going to come from the children, and we're going to have to take Chris and Danny's uh, perspectives and and take that as food for thought for this case. And also, I mean, we can look back at a lot of the research that's been done and kind of put together a narrative of the story. But like you said, we're never going to really know what went on because we weren't the ones that lived in that house. And we no, I I would like you know I'd I'd love to do an informal survey sometime and just ask how many people would move into a house a scant year after six people had been violently murdered in that house and live with all of their you know furniture and things you know and what's funny is as much as i know about the world of the paranormal i would do it in a second if i could get you know a, a an antique dutch colonial that is worth three times as much as i'm paying for it I would I would probably take the same risk that the Lutzes did. I don't know. I'd have to think very long and hard about it myself, and I don't think I'd be living with all of the, you know, victims' possessions myself. I think George, being that Marine type and being you know a businessman, he was probably looking at the the value more than uh, more than what could happen. So. I don't fault them for that. But then again, you know, everybody always does like to point out to the fact that you know they only stayed. 28 days and you know when would the mortgage be due well here's the thing though again and this is something that that's been a theme uh, and it's always puzzled me and uh i think this was in the miamiville horror documentary which uh eric walter did a brilliant job of great great uh, you know putting together first of all you have to again consider 
the times in their context. Back in the mid-70s, you know, we didn't have any such thing as the sub subprime mortgage meltdown that we have today. Mm-hmm. It was not easy to get a mortgage. You had to you had to have good credit to qualify. So if they didn't have um, the money to qualify, they wouldn't have gotten the mortgage. And as anybody knows, you you know, once you put the down payment on the house, you don't pay, you don't make a payment for two months. Right. And so how could they have been in financial arrears when they weren't even in that house for a month. Not to mention, George had like three motorcycles, and, and how much could the mortgage payment have been? He couldn't have sold one of the motorcycles you know, in order to, to make the payment if that was what they had to do? Yeah, I mean, he, and he had, you know, he had a, a, you know, a good job. The family surveying business was an established business. This was not a new business. They had been in business for, you know, 30, 40 years. So, I, but you know, as we said, as you said, uh, you know, the, only the people that live there really know what happened, and uh, yeah, and I don't. Uh, by the way, I uh, over the years I have never tried to convince anybody that it was either a hoax or that it's a true story. I think people have to make up their own minds. You know, I almost wonder if if it was a hoax, and I'm not saying that it was, but if it was a hoax, they just happened to decide to have this hoax take place in a house that was actually haunted. Yeah, well, if it was a hoax, then the joke is on them because, you know, they never made, uh, you know, uh, the millions, you know, that you would think that they would have made. Mm-hmm. Well, we thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you let everybody know about, if if you don't mind, uh, about what you're up to these days? Well, sure. I have my own business called um, Information Technology Intelligence Consulting, ITIC. And as you noted at the top of the program, um, I am a consultant in the high-tech industry. I also still um, am a a reporter and writer. I write about high-technology topics, but I also still um, am involved in um, uh, parasite, you know, uh, the occult in some way. Um, I was a co-producer on the Amity, My Amityville Horror documentary, and at this point I am also doing a um, writing a book. It's a biography of uh, Vicki Monroe, who is a spirit messenger, a psychic medium. She's located in Maine, and she has worked with um, law enforcement to help solve cold case murders and things like this. She's one of those people who sees, hears, and speaks to spirits, and dead people. So um, I guess I never really left the field. <laughs> well, if, if hopefully when the book comes out, yourself and, and Miss Monroe can join us here on Spooky South Coast. And, you know, uh, you're just really a stone's throw away from us here at uh, here in Fairhaven. And so if you ever want to come along with us on any of our adventures, we'd love to have you along. Oh, we'd love it. And I'm, I'm sure Vicki would love to be on the, on the show as well. I mean, Vicki has, uh, she had a radio show up in uh, Portland, Maine on uh, once a week where she actually did readings and i can tell you um of all the psychics that i've dealt with and different psychics have different you know talents um she is she is a very very powerful medium so it would be great if she if you opened it up to callers and oh absolutely yeah but we also want to find out more about her and her work too so we'll make sure that we touch upon all that so we look we'll look forward to the book coming out Okay, great. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for joining us, Laura DiDio, and we will talk to you soon.
Thank you. All Bye. Right, have a great night. Bye-bye. And now we will be back in just a minute. We're going to take a break here. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk about last week's Legend Trips event. We'll share some of the evidence that was captured. Some of it is pretty good stuff. And we'll share some of our personal stories as well. And don't forget, if you'd like to join us for a Legend Trips event, we will be at the Fearing Tavern in Wareham, Massachusetts, coming up this Saturday night. So no spooky South Coast next week because we will be out at this Legend Trips event. But why not come and join us? Tickets are $99 and a portion of all... All proceeds go to help raise money for the Wareham Historical Society. You're going to get dinner. You're going to get lectures. You're going to get a great time. So uh, why don't you come on out? Go to legendtrips.com if you want to find out more. And uh, we are going to have that Connect system uh, in place. We'll talk about that coming up in just a bit. We'll also take your calls, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. We'll be back in just a minute. Hello. Hey, man. What? You up? No. Wake up. I need to talk to you. I think your house is haunted. Hey, come on. It's 2.30 in the morning. I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared. All right. Welcome back. Tim Weiser here along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, and science advisor, Matt Moniz. And we are going to talk about last week's Legend Trips event at Slater Mill as well as this week's upcoming event at the Fearing Tavern. Fearing Tavern, I have to keep remembering to say it right. It's, it's so much better for marketing to say fearing, though. Uh, but before we do that, we, I, I do want to get into this a little bit here. Uh, Monday night, I'm at work at the Standard Times, and I have my Facebook feed open. And uh, it's about 10 o'clock at night, 10.30 maybe. And all of a sudden, I see Matt Costa posted a picture up on Facebook. And I was like, what the? So, Matt, we just want to acknowledge your new look. Yep. Looks awesome. Thank you. And uh, just decided it was time for a change? Yep. It's a big change, I guess. I don't know. Makes it easier to get up out of bed. Well, I mean, you had long hair before, and that's pretty easy to get up out of bed with, too, though, right? You just brush it, and you're done. Just new beginnings, I guess. Right. Right. So, uh, and I noticed you're going with the the Wolverine look here on the facial hair. I'm I'm not sure what I'm going for for Halloween. I I think it might be some sort of Old West thing. (laughs) That that could definitely work. Maybe Wyatt Earp. That might work. So I wanted the facial hair to match. So uh, that begs the question, Moniz, when's your makeover coming? (laughs) When I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it just grows longer, doesn't it, when you die? Actually, yeah. So so there you go. So uh, I I just wanted to uh, acknowledge that for anybody that was wondering when they saw Matt's picture up on uh, Facebook. And and now when they see you in your your vines. Great vine the other day uh, with the pizza, by the way. Oh, that yeah, was yeah. that wasn't you making it. You no, were just filming it. it. it yeah. Okay, that looks like some awesome pizza. Yeah, it was from pretty awesome. And it, I think we're going to be able to have some of that awesome pizza this coming Saturday night. Maybe if the yeah. price is right. If the price <laughs> is right, and if uh, if the the pizza man ever gets a hold of me, we can work it out. But uh, we will have some sort of pizza, and we guarantee you it will be good. Uh, coming up this Saturday at our Legend Trips event at the Ferring Tavern in Wareham, Massachusetts. Legendtrips.com is the website if you'd like to join us. But we had some pretty good pizza last week too mm-hmm. uh, at Slater Mill, and it's kind of funny that you know we had all this paranormal stuff going on, and the first thing we want to talk about is the food. Just goes to show you where my mind is uh, today. But mm-hmm. uh, we've been to Slater Mill now. This is our second Legend Trips event there, and. And the first time it was very active. There was a lot of things going on. And this time I, I feel like it didn't disappoint either. I mean, I know it was a, a pretty intimate group and we were able to keep the numbers uh, pretty small within each area. And that sometimes helps, sometimes doesn't help in terms of having activity take place. But Moniz, where, you were stationed in the Wilkinson Mill. 
Yes, I was. Were you in the machine shop or were you in the wheel well? Or did you kind of just float between the two? I was kind of floating between all of them. I I know the wheel well was very active, as it usually is. Yeah, but we also got access into the attic, which turned out to be uh, another hot spot, believe it or not. Uh, Andy and I had some encounters in the machine shop itself with some uncorrelated uh, noises, but uh, the wheel well and... The attic definitely were really buzzing, and uh, and Matt, you kind of floated around throughout the course of the night. Uh, you went from building to building. What what yeah. what area would probably be that, that you felt was the most active or seemed to be having the most activity? I mean, it seemed like the wheel room in the uh, Wilkinson Mill seemed to be. I'm not sure if it was just because the uh, the water and the wheel because they did get the wheel going at one point. Yeah, in the yeah. Night. Um, I don't know if that had that played a, a factor into it, or if that there was. Uh, it seemed like there was a lot of people there, so I don't know. Yeah. Now you didn't. You weren't there for the first time we went there, right? No, no, I wasn't. So this was your first chance to kind of yep, experience yep. Slater Mill. What, I mean, what'd you think of it on the whole? I thought it was a really cool place. I mean, it's it's yeah. fascinating to to know that that's just sitting there, right in the middle of Pawtucket. Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought it was going to be uh, out in the middle of nowhere or something, but it's just right next to the police station, next to the fire department. It's pro- probably our safest legend trip in terms of where we're located. Although there's people kind of walking in and out of the area all night long, and they let them do that. You know, it's, it's, oh, yeah. it's kind of like a park where they can bring the dogs for an 11:30 walk. So, uh, but the there was a lot of activity uh, taking place. I was in the Sylvanus Brown House all night. And uh, we'll play some clips uh, from when we were investigating there using a shack hack device. But one of the more profound stories that happened to me while I was in the Brown House, uh, myself and Paul from Candlelight Paranormal, we were walking around the Brown House. uh, And at one point we decided to go down to the basement and we could hear... We, we were in the basement is actually the kitchen of the Sylvanus Brown house. Uh, I think it was built in 1725 and it was moved to the Slater mill property in the 1960s. And we were down there and we could hear all these bangings happening. We were the only two down there and we'd walk into one room and there'd be a bang coming out from the main room. And then we go back out into the main room and there wouldn't be a bang and there'd be one in the room that we were just in. So it was kind of messing with us a little bit. Uh, while we were down there, I know for a fact from the last group, that we had closed and latched this door to like a closet area, essentially, uh, because all the doors there have those old-fashioned latches where you have to lift up the little handle and the little bar goes across the hook. And uh, I was having trouble getting one of them to close in the downstairs. And so I made sure that when I opened the other door that I got that one to close at least so that I knew that one of the doors was closed. And when we came back down there, the door was wide open. So that was kind of interesting. We tried walking on the stairs, walking on the, the floor above it to see if any of that triggered the door to, to come open. Nothing seemed to do it. But what, one of the most profound things that happened was we were in that house with Carl Johnson. And Carl was welcoming everybody into the brown house, kind of giving them a little bit of the history of it. And there's a closet on the first floor uh, where the, the children's bedroom, the child's bed is. And we had opened up the closet to see what was in there. And then we had closed it. We thought we closed it, and Paul and I walked to the other side of the, the house, and we heard the door shut. So we came running back, and we said, Carl, did you just close that door? And Carl said, well, yeah, yeah, I just closed it because you guys left it open, so I closed the door. 
Oh, okay. So we think it's just nothing. So we turn around and we look at the door as we're getting ready to walk back into the way that we just came through. And as we look at the door, the door just goes, <laughs> rattles in its place. So something was moving that door uh, that we couldn't see. But it was just overall, it was a very, it seemed like a very active night. And we were getting a lot of stuff coming through the different devices, the different pieces of tech that we were using. One thing that didn't really get a lot of uh, reaction was the Connect system that uh, Jeff Belanger had. Now, if you've never seen this in action, it was featured on Ghost Adventures, and Bill Chappell is the person who designed the system. He basically took the developer's camera for the Xbox Connect system, and he made some modifications so that it will record in IR. And when you put it on, it makes a stick figure representation of you, and I, I've Put a photo up on Facebook and Instagram if you want to see what it looks like. And it makes it turns you into a stick figure, and it maps your articulate points. And the idea is that if a spirit comes into the room, it will also map that spirit and its articulate points. And uh, I know that Bill's had a lot of success with it in some of the other places that he's used it. Slater Mill, not so much with it that night, but we will have it with us in Wareham uh, this coming weekend. And also we'll have it November 9th at the Haunted Victorian Mansion in Gardner, Massachusetts, which there are only six tickets left for that event. So if you want to jump on board that event, you have to get those tickets uh, right away because I, I get a feeling that after next Saturday, those are going to be gone. Because usually what happens is there'll be some tickets available for an event. People come to one event, and then they want to get tickets to the next one. And so those six tickets to the SK Pierce Mansion in Gardner, those will be gone. On, I would say, I would think by next Sunday, yeah. so try and get those now if you'd like to get them. But the Connect system, Moni, is, is as a scientist. I mean, that's a very interesting tool to have with us now because it's it's using uh, thermal imaging, and then from there it's mapping your your outline, and it's only going to register what the camera sees. The camera's impartial; it it doesn't have any preconceived notions. It's looking for a set of data points and. If it finds those data points, it puts them up on the screen. And I didn't find any of that particular night, but I'm really interested to see what happens when we bring it into the... Uh, I'm assuming that Jeff's going to run that in the Old Methodist Meeting House this week because, well, we need electricity to run it. <laughs> so it's got to be somewhere where we can plug it in. But uh, the uh, And I'm pretty sure that if we plugged it into the one outlet in the Fearing Tavern, we'd mm. blow everything. But Because uh, I did that before with just with my uh, soundboard. So, uh, but anyway, in, in that meeting house last year, that's where he caught, Jeff caught his first ever EVP in his 15 years of investigating. Uh, he had never caught an EVP before, and he caught one using Spiricom tones. Uh, they were doing table yep. tipping sessions in there with a lot of success. Uh, Stephanie has actually brought, through Stephanie Burke, one of our spirit mediums that come along on these events, actually brought through Andrew Lake's father, there uh so the the meeting house has had a lot of activity over the years so i'm really interested to see what happens when we set up that connect system there next saturday uh, again you can go to legendtrips.com if you want to find out more about these events and to purchase tickets uh but while, while we were at slater mill last week a few uh, examples of evp and, and different types of recordings have already come uh through our email at legend trips so I'd like to play some of these for you. And now this first one was captured by Candlelight Paranormal. Uh, this was in, I believe this was in Slitter Mill itself. And you'll hear the investigators talking, and then there's a, a voice uh, that said, well, I'll let you hear what it says. You'll, you'll be able to make it out. Seriously, Dad? What? You didn't just say get out. Seriously? No. Wow. Play that one more time. Seriously, Dad? What? I'll just play it again. Seriously, Dad? 
fuck? You didn't just say get out. So Paul not only captured that, he heard that with his own ears. That was in the Wilkins, Wilkinson Mill on in the attic up on the fourth floor. In the attic itself? In, in the attic itself on the, the fourth which floor. Which we had never, we hadn't been Correct. into in previous investigations. The thing is so. filled with antiques. And they didn't want you in there for some reason. <laughs> Get out. So that's uh, that's definitely what it said. And uh, now we have a few that were captured in the Sylvanus Brown house. Uh, I was working with uh, the members of Spectral Forces Paranormal Research Team, and uh, whose new website, by the way, went live today, spectralforcesprt.com. If you want to go to their website, and you can hear some of their evidence there, as well from some of their other Legend Trips events that they've been on with us, as well as their own investigations. But we have these here, and I'm going to... Uh, try to run them for you i i lost the part where they actually all downloaded so i'm just going to re-download them all and we were running the shack hack device uh we were using i think we were running the sp7 which is not the best quality uh audio uh, but we were getting some interesting things coming through and now one of the stories that comes from there is that there's the spirit of rebecca in the Brown House. Some people report encountering Rebecca as a six to seven year old girl. Some people report encountering her as an 80 year old woman. And throughout the course of the night, something was stroking Cindy's hair. Something kept touching her hair like it wanted to brush her hair or play with her hair. Uh, so that was happening quite a bit. And we were actually sitting on the staircase that goes up to the second floor. We're not allowed on the second floor because the, it's in disrepair. Uh, but we were sitting on the staircase because we were getting some very interesting k2 hits and we would put the k2 down on the steps and it would keep lighting up in response to our questions and i'm going around with the mel meter trying to find any kind of emf fluctuation there is an alarm system underneath the stairs but that didn't seem to be setting anything off so all these things were going on so here is when we were having one of those k2 fluctuations oh you know i'm coming downstairs and yours is going off underneath your phone there okay i'm coming down yeah there we go pay for did you follow me down here hear that little bit of little scream in the background that we heard audibly now that was pretty loud and there's a lot of people around so i'm assuming that if somebody else you know if if that was something that was happening outside the building or something that other people would have heard it and reported it but i don't know anybody else that heard that so that was something that was happening during uh the uh K2 session that we were doing on the staircase and then we were running the uh, shack hack device and now this is kind of hard to hear what this device does for those unfamiliar is it sweeps through radio waves and it doesn't stop so the original modifications these are these also known as a Frank's box or a ghost box the original modification involved removing the pin that would stop when you swept through the channels, you know, when you hit the seek button in your car and it'll go through till it finds a good signal, then it'll stop. Well, the pin is removed that keeps that from happening, and so it just keeps sweeping through. Now the SB7 is something that's designed just to sweep through, and you can adjust the sweep rates and things like that. So we had that running on the AM band, and we're trying to make some sort of communication with the spirit there. And you'll hear on this clip, it will refer to Mrs. T., which is interesting because one of the people I was investigating with was somebody whose last name began with a T. So it was Cindy who was having her hair stroked. So we think it was kind of calling attention to her. And then you'll hear it say, I am Rebecca. And, you know, I'll just let you uh, decide for yourself if, if you can Can you say the word girl? 
See this? Those two fluctuations. Those going off too? Yes, sir. Yep. Sit. Are you with us right now? Are you standing right in front of us? Near? Talking about a girl? Is that you that just made the noise next to me? That's my heart right there. Did you hear what it just said? Yeah, I'm going back up. Did you hear what it said before that? I'm Rebecca. Oh, I heard, I heard Mrs. T. Mrs. T? Is that you that just made the noise next to me? Noise next to me? What do you think, Matt Costa? You're the, uh, you have the skeptical look on your face. I don't know. I thought I heard Misty. <laughs> Play Misty for me? Mm, I don't know. But it sounds like it says, it, it sounds like it says Miss T or Mrs. T. Yep. I am Rebecca. I mean, it, it sounds like that to me. Moniz, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with Costa more Misty than misty. Mrs. T. Mm. Okay. But how about the I am Rebecca Becca. part? Definitely hear Becca. I'll run that one more time here. did hear rebecca i don't know <laughs> so for uh for a place where you know rebecca is the most frequently reported spirit mm. you know it's just something to to put out there and, and see what people think and we'll uh we'll get those up on the legend trips website and i know that you can get those uh spirit box session uh clips from the spectral forces website spectral forces prt.com and candlelight paranormal posted the get out evp up on their facebook page so Facebook.com slash uh, Candlelight Paranormal. So you can check that out, too. And if you want to find out more about some of these events, you can go to LegendTrips.com. And I'm excited to get back this week to the Fearing Tavern because we were the first people to ever be allowed in there to investigate. And Moniz, just recall for people just what it was like being in there the first time. Well, I remember when I was going there as a kid, I always thought the place was pretty wild. But when we got to go in there... It was the basement was probably the wildest point because you could feel the the definite temperature difference. But of course, you're in the basement, and you, you knew you were in an old place just looking at the beams, the way the beams looked and stuff like that. And it definitely had, for lack of a better term, an eerie vibe to it. I don't know what you felt, but. I'm pretty sure you felt something similar. Well, I'm going to look and see if I can find some of the EVPs that we captured there. But uh, I thought that it was, you know, haunted just looking at it for years. I stared at it every day. And it just looked like a place that if any place was going to be haunted, it would be that. Uh, Matt, what did you, what did you think of the, the Faring Tavern the, the first time that we investigated it, before we even started going in there for Legend Trips events? The first time we investigated? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I stayed there the whole night that night. You cut out early? I think so. I think so. I only got a couple hours in. Well, but, but still, I mean, you, you definitely do fear, uh, fear, feel a vibe in there. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. 
And uh, I'll never forget the night we were in there and we could hear the women having the conversation on the yeah, second floor. That was wild. And there was nobody up there. <laughs> but we can hear them, like, talking and, and getting louder. You know, one would talk, and one would get louder, and then the other one would get louder. And I'm like, is everybody else here? Yeah, because you were looking, doing a head count. I was like, wait a minute, everybody's here. Who's up there speaking? And I'm trying to find real quickly uh, some of the EVPs that we've captured there in the past. But uh, that is where we caught the uh, Hey Ashford EVP that Mike Markowitz Yeah, that was has. in the basement. And Mike. that that was one of the creepiest things I've ever heard. And uh, probably, though, one of the – as much as we talk about that one, and, and I'll go out and I'll do presentations, and, and you guys have been there when we played them at Legend Trips events, we'll play that Ashford clip, and people will just be like, oh. I think that that's one that – if you if you listen to it more, the more often you listen to it, the creepier it gets. Right, I think. And and it's once you hear it, then you realize every you, time it's played, it's like you can't you, get, you can't unhear hear it. it. And when you, especially when you're considering that uh, that the spirit is talking about murder. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty interesting. I'm uh, I'm just trying to look here and see if we can. Oh man, I don't. I don't have it here in my email, uh, but uh, you can if you go back to the Spooky South Coast archives. Did, did you find it? Is that was that? <laughs> if you go back to our Spooky South Coast archives, you can find that episode uh, where we had Mike Markowitz here in studio and we played some of those clips. And the, but as much as people are creeped out by that Hey Ashford clip going uh, coming from the basement, a lot of people are fascinated by the one that. Mike caught going down into the basement with his handheld tape recorder. He got a little girl saying, want to play dress up? And that's one that is it's very clear. Yeah. And there were no children there that a- night. Absolutely not. And we've gotten everything from the sound of an iron gate slamming shut there uh, to which there's no iron gate there at all. Anymore. Uh, we, anymore. Uh, we've, we've caught uh, voices talking about the American Revolution. Because keep in mind that this house was probably the home of loyalists back during the revolution and there's that hidden room where they may have been hiding british soldiers from the colonists and if there was a tunnel underneath that could have been what the point of the tunnel was so it's uh it's really a unique place i mean what else can you get into a place that was built in 1690 and have the chance to investigate and not only that but you're getting three other great buildings as well the old methodist meeting house which is where we meet for dinner and lectures and everything uh then also the union chapel and the one room schoolhouse which moniz i know that we usually station you in the one room schoolhouse because there seems to be something there that's a little bit uh i don't want to say dark but definitely uh combative a bit Yes, but I'm relinquishing the schoolhouse this year to Andy. I'm going to let him and the girls play in there for the night, and I'm going to take the chapel. But every year I've been in there, there's been definite definite activity that people have experienced in the... Uh, You're going to be able to get Tiffany and Stephanie to stay in there because they don't like it in there. I know. That's why I'm putting them in there with Andy. <laughs> I'm sure they'll be there for about 10 minutes before they suddenly walk through the front door of the tavern and be like, we need to come in here. We need to relax a bit. Uh, so we will be doing that event this coming Saturday night. Tickets are still available. If you go to legendtrips.com, 
you can check it out for yourself. I mean, really, why not come on one of these events if you've been thinking about it and you've never been? This is the time of year to do it. This is going to be our last event until Halloween. So if you want to get into the Halloween spirit, why not come along with us? You're going to get some great history out of this night in addition to, hopefully, a paranormal experience. We can't guarantee you a ghost. We can only guarantee you a good time. Uh, But we will put on a good time for you, we promise, because we'll have dinner. We'll have some uh, pizza and some salad. We'll have drinks and snacks throughout the course of the night, all included with your ticket. We'll also have Tiffany Rice and Stephanie Burke, our spirit mediums there. <coughs> Excuse me. I was trying to hold that one in. You can um, you can purchase a reading with them. Uh, it's only $30 to get a 20-minute private one-on-one reading, which we usually do in the one-room schoolhouse, which just mm. adds to it uh, a bit. You can take your picture with Jeff Belanger. Right. That's And that's something that you normally have to pay like 25 bucks to have happen. So you can do that, and, uh, and you'll get to investigate these buildings for hours. That's the thing about, especially Haunted History Night, we have decided that you know people don't really want to hear us talk too much. They want to get into these buildings. They want to have the chance to investigate them. So uh, we will definitely give you plenty of time to do so. The event runs from 6 p.m. until 2 a.m., so you're getting eight hours worth of fun uh, for $99. And, of course, a portion of all those tickets it goes right back to helping the Wareham Historical Society take care of these buildings. And as I mentioned earlier, we've we raised nearly $16,000 in the couple of years that we've done this from our, our great legend trippers. That's, that's all thanks to them. And we've also had the occasional paranormal celebrity decide that they want to show up and right. check the place out. So you never know who will walk through the door. Yeah, Amy Bruni's popped in in the past uh, at, at the Faring Tavern. And, and part of that is because they know that they're not even going to be able to get in there otherwise. So that's the thing. is you know As much as I don't like it when groups control a location, we are the only people that are allowed into the Faring Tavern to investigate. So this is your only way to get in there. Well, the difference is we didn't make it that way. That's just the way the Historical Society prefers Right. And so this is your chance if you ever wanted to investigate it, if you've ever heard us talk about it, or you've driven by it and said, hey, that looks like a place I want to go check out, uh, then this is the way to do it. Tickets are just $99. You're getting a full night of fun for that. And, of course, uh, it all goes to helping the tavern as well. Now, normally we try to do an auction. And we try to uh, we try to auction off a piece of the location for people, and I, I'm wondering what kind of uh, what what we can offer for an auction from Wareham here. I'm I'm thinking a night on Moni's Island. No. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I now got Costa as a neighbor. Yeah. Again. All right. That's it's going to be party time down it there all the time. Party. So uh, we will not be here next Saturday night, of course, because we will be at that Legend Trips event. Hopefully you will join us. But if not, we'll be back coming up in two weeks when we will have our special guests, Aaron Kaju and Manny Famolare, to talk about their upcoming documentary, The Bridgewater Triangle, which will be making its debut the next day, October 20th. It's the world premiere at UMass Dartmouth. We'll all be there as part of the panel on the Bridgewater Triangle. It'll be hosted by WBSM's Phil Paleologos, and you can get your tickets to see that by going to the Bridgewater Triangle documentary.com and you can be there at UMass Dartmouth with us. Uh, and there'll also be a second screening coming up on the 28th at Bridgewater State University. So if you can't make it to the big premiere on October 20th, you can go on the 28th to Bridgewater State or you can purchase the streaming option from SpookySouthCoast.com if you are listening elsewhere. I know that you know our audience is worldwide. <laughs> Adjust the tie. <laughs> but uh, So we have people that listen to the show from all around the world who have heard about the Bridgewater Triangle and want to see this film but physically can't make it to Massachusetts for either of the showings. So you can purchase that stream. It's $8, Matt, is it? Yep, it's $8. It's going to be a, a big event. Um, it's not just going to be the movie. It's going to be... 
uh, I, hopefully we're going to be doing a, a pre-show. A pre-show, right? There's going to be a Q and A, uh, all sorts of stuff, and it's well worth eight dollars if you're sitting at home in front of your computer. Right, and and not only that, but you're not going to get you know a camera pointed at the screen. You're getting a direct feed right, in, right? So you'll be able to see the film in high definition. So, uh, and remember, like most people, and it's way better than what we do right now. Right, yeah, it's way better than the normal spooky TV. <laughs> we did this we is- did a test a couple of weeks ago, and it was. Uh, Phenomenal! It was professional yeah, videographer, real cameras, yeah, HD. Yeah. So uh, it big should, time stuff. It should be pretty intense. <laughs> and uh, the best part about that is, so many people now they their their TVs are web friendly. Right. You know, they can right. connect to the web with their TVs, or they run their computer into their television. You can plug your laptop into your TV via the HDMI port, and you can right. sit there and watch it on the big screen in your living room. So uh, definitely check that out. SpookySouthCoast.com. If you go to the Spooky TV page, you can purchase that. You can also get it directly from the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. And so we hope to see you all on October 20th. And definitely we hope to see you all next Saturday night at our Legend Trips event. Uh, It's going to be a great time. I'm excited. I love, love, love being able to investigate in my own town because then it's only a 10-minute ride home (laughs) as opposed to that (laughs) 45-minute ride home last week. All right, that does it for this week. Until next time, we want you all to stay spooktacular.